So we are on session number 10 of marriage. Session number 10 of marriage. And um, so what, what happened last week is we ran out of time. I didn't get a chance to finish communication. So I'm going to finish communication today and then go into conflict. But I always plan to kind of do them both together anyway. Because one of the things that we talked about was that I'm just of the belief that conflict, a, a, a big majority of the conflict that happens in marriage comes from poor communication. So we can cut that down, learn to disagree like Christians, it'll cut down a lot of the conflict. The better we communicate, less conflict, and we take that from there and then learn to actually have conflict like believers would, and we'll cut down on a lot of this. So first things first, if you think it's possible, if you think it's possible to live in this world without conflict, you're in the wrong universe. Okay? It's not possible. It is absolutely impossible to be married, to have friendships, to be in a church, to live around people, human beings, and expect that there be no conflict. Okay? I'll say this all the time. You didn't get that from the scriptures. You got that from a Disney movie. Okay? That's not reality. That's not real. Okay? That being the case, I need to set that out there. So that's why communication is so vitally important. So one of the things we... Yes, sir? So when I say conflict... I'm distinguishing between their sinful conflict, which you should, shouldn't be, because you shouldn't be sinning, but you're going to, because it's impossible for us not to sin this out of the grave, amen? So you shouldn't be having ungodly sinful conflict, but you're going to have conflict. You're going to disagree. You're not going to always see eye to eye. So to answer your question, no and yes. Okay? You shouldn't be throwing punches at each other. Absolutely not. Should you expect to not ever have conflict in unison? No. It's not realistic. So one of the things we talked about last week was good communication does not demand agreement. Okay? You, you do, it does... <clears throat> Just because you disagree does not mean you're not communicating well, okay? If you have, again, if you have a terrible idea and you communicate well, what is everybody going to hear? A terrible idea, okay? So good communication does not entail agreement. Good communication means that you have conveyed whatever it is you're trying to say in a God-honoring way, and that the person who's receiving that information actually understands you, okay? So we need to jettison some of these ideas about no such thing as conflict, and it's going to be always agreement. That being the case, so we're in, we finished off last week, or we stopped last week on biblical principles of verbal communication. 
all right? Biblical principles of verbal communication is where we stopped last week. We got through the first two general principles, which were we must truly desire to guard our lips. And the second one, guarded speech helps to avoid conflict. Okay, so then now we're in, and I'm actually I think we got through the first one, right? Christ's uh, communication was holy. We got through the first two. So, so there was these general principles of verbal communication, and then there was these four specific principles, and those four were Christ's communication was holy, Christ's communication was purposeful, Christ's communication was clear, and Christ's communication was timely, right? So now, so we're on number two, if you follow along in your handout, subpoint number two of the four specific principles, which is Christ's communication was clear, okay? Christ's communication was clear. That means that the way you say things must be straightforward and appropriate. Yes, ma'am. I'm sorry. We got through those two last week. Was holy and purposeful. So now we're on clear. I apologize. So, um, <clears throat> that's it. Poor, commu poor communication. <laughs> All right. So Christ's communication was clear. What you say, the way you say what you say must be straightforward and appropriate. So listen to the word of the Lord, Matthew 5:37. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. Okay, Jesus was a master at getting to the heart of the matter whenever he communicated. Okay, every word he ever spoke was perfectly suited for the situation that he was in. And Christ was a man of few words. And he never said more than what he needed to say. So quite often, I said this last week, one of the things that one of the mistakes that we make is to think because we're comfortable talking or because we use a lot of words, we assume we're good communicators. Sometimes too many words can, can convolute things and just mess everything up, right? You need to say as much as necessary, right? And you need to be clear and you need to say what you actually mean. Okay, too many words can make our communication unclear and can also lead to sin. Proverbs 10:19 says, "When words are many, transgression is not lacking." That's Proverbs 10:19. "When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent." Okay? So we need to be straightforward. We need to be concise brief and appropriate when we speak. So in other words, to communicate well, say all you need to say, but you don't need to say everything that's on your mind all the time. That's not necessary all the time, okay? So the heart of the righteous ponders how to answer but the mouth of the wicked pours out evil things. That's Proverbs 15, 28, right? If you're going to be clear in your communication, if you're going to communicate like the Lord Jesus Christ and you're going to communicate with your spouse in a way that is God-honoring, you need to always pray about what you say, what you're going to say, 
You need to think carefully. Think carefully about what needs to actually be addressed. Okay, so if, we're, if I'm communicating with somebody and I'm having a conversation with somebody, you need to make sure that the things that you're actually saying are about this conversation. Okay, so it's not, it's not practical, nor is it wise to try to, to try to fix every marital problem in every conversation that you have. Okay, sometimes you need, if we're talking about me put, not putting the, Bible, the blue Bible back where it's supposed to go, that's what this conversation needs to be about. Okay, it can't be about in 1995 when I didn't do the dishes. Okay, sometimes you have to deal with the problem that's in front of you and then pick another time to deal with the other problems. Okay, so you need to think carefully about what needs to be addressed. Again, we need to speak concisely. Okay, and you need to refrain, ladies, hear me. Refrain from withholding information that is critical for us to know. You know what I'm talking about, ladies, right? I'm not telling you, you should know why I'm upset. You know what I'm talking about, ladies? We're not as smart as you seem to think we are. Sometimes we genuinely don't know what's wrong. So if your husband says, what's wrong, be gracious and assume he doesn't know. Put the best construction on it and just tell him what's wrong. Okay? We need to discuss mutual definitions. Okay, because sometimes, especially if we come from two different backgrounds, two different cultures, particularly, right? We may not be using phrases and words in the same way. Okay? That's very, that's very possible. Okay? We may not be using words and phrases in the same way, and it is very helpful sometimes just to define. What do you mean when you say that? Okay? And we have to use zero, zero manipulation tactics. Okay? Say exactly what you mean. Don't hint at what you mean. Don't leave breadcrumbs about what you mean. Be absolutely clear. This is what I mean. Okay, so if you remember last week, we talked about you're not ready to comment until you're talking to the other person and you say, is this what you mean? Repeat it to them, and then they say, yes, that's what I mean. Until then, you shouldn't even be framing an opinion. That makes sense to you? Because you literally have no idea what you're talking about at that point up until, you can, until they can say, yes, that's what I mean. You don't know what you're talking about. You're not listening well if you assume you know what you're talking about. Okay? Don't intentionally say things in order to make people feel guilty to get your way. You understand? You don't intentionally say things in order to make people feel guilty. You know, they, they're really good at this at, like, if you ever go buy a car or, like, try to, like, if somebody try to sell you some insurance or something like that, they'll have you sign some paperwork that'll say, sign here if you don't want to save this money. You know, stuff like that. We shouldn't communicate like that with our spouses. You shouldn't say things like, 
like that, that that would make them feel guilty for not agreeing with you. Okay? And again, like I said, don't assume, don't wrongly assume good communication equals agreement. So that's how we communicate clearly. So the last one, the last specific principle for communicating clearly, or I'm sorry, or communication, verbal communication is, Christ's communication was timely. Christ's communication was timely. So when you say things, they need to be at the right time, okay? Proverbs 2, uh, 2511 says, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a, in a setting of silver. That, uh, Holman says it like this, a word spoken at the right time is like golden apples on a silver tray. Okay? <clears throat> Christ's communication was always at the right time. Okay? There are two principles to consider whenever we think about the timing of what we say. We must communicate as soon as the situation allows, and we must communicate when the timing is, is right. Okay? We must communicate when the timing is right. So what I mean by we must communicate as soon as a situation allows is you cannot put off what needs to be said or dealing with the conflict any longer than necessary. Don't give the devil room to start, you know, getting in your spouse's head. So if you have a conflict that you're trying to deal with or you got something that needs to be said, something very important, don't wait any longer than necessary. That makes sense to you? When you get the opportunity to say it, say it. Or many of us are. In order to avoid difficult conversations, things that we know that are going to be hard conversations or potentially conflict, we just keep putting it off and putting it off and putting it off and putting it off and putting it off. That's not, that's not good communication. Okay, avoidance of conflict doesn't mean good communication. When, when the, don't put it off any longer than absolutely necessary. Also, <clears throat> when we wait without good reason, we give the devil opportunity to use the situation for his good and not God's. That makes sense to you? You don't want to do that. So choosing the right time to speak will also help good communication to take place. So it is not, it's not wise to deal when with an important situation when there's not enough time. Okay? So if we, you know, if we get in a, it takes us 20 minutes to drive to church, I'm not going to start a conversation with my wife that I know is going to be this long, drawn-out, you know, situation that we need to deal with. That's not the right time to do that. If my wife is at home, I come home from work, my wife is cooking, and she got babies hanging all over her, and that's not the right time to to have that conversation, okay? When there's not enough time, when someone is extremely tired, or you know the other person is distracted, okay? The other person is distracted, it's probably not. Men, that's not an example, that's not an excuse for you to say, I'm watching the game, don't talk to me right now. That's not what that means, okay? If you know the other person is going to be distracted, it's probably not if they're working or they're doing something important that they can't 
in good conscience stop doing in that moment, it's probably not a good time to have that conversation with them, okay? Now these, again, these are just general principles. These are not hard and fast rules. Don't go home and say, Pastor Corey, say don't talk to me when I'm distracted, okay? These are general principles that you need to put into place to help you communicate better. So sometimes that we do have legitimate reasons for putting off conversations. There may be times when it's not the right time, but like you just saying like, I don't feel like it, or I have a hobby that I'm trying to complete is not a legitimate reason for you not to have the conversation if the time warrants. Make sense to you? That makes sense to you? Okay. All right, to be timely, we need to communicate something that needs to be communicated as soon as it's prudent, as soon as it's prudent to do so, don't needlessly wait. We need to communicate when we have adequate time to talk about what needs to be discussed and to give the other person ample opportunity to respond. Okay? So I need to be able to communicate to you what I'm trying to say, what I'm trying to get across, that you actually understand me, and then you have ample opportunity to respond to what I've said to you. And be sure that the time you choose is the best time for all those parties involved. All right? So in conclusion, so this is what good communication, it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of discipline. It takes a lot of work, and you're, you must be fully determined, fully determined to pursue God-honoring communication. It's not easy to create these kind of habits, but it's very, very important to the Lord because how you communicate indicates the disposition of your heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks is what the scriptures say. So how you communicate with your spouse Again, it's like a temperature gauge for what's going on inside of you, inside of your heart. So it's very important how you communicate with your spouse. And unless you truly desire to honor God in this aspect of your marriage, the relationship will never be what, it's, what it could have been. It'll never reflect the glory of God. It'll never show the relationship properly between Christ and his church if you don't discipline yourself to communicate well. Now, I'm going to say this because I failed at this more times than I can count, so I'm speaking from experience. Good communication, you need it the most during conflict, right? The problem is, is that's the hardest time to do it, okay? That's when it becomes the hardest, because there's so many emotions involved, and you're not thinking most of the time because you're upset, or you're not getting your way, or you're being sinful, or whatever, but that's the time, those are the times when you have to discipline yourself the most to use these things that we're talking about. That's when they matter the most. So you should be communicating as well as you can all the time, but it's absolutely critical to do it and discipline yourself to do it during conflict. That make sense? Okay. So good communication in a God-honoring way involves having the right heart, one that is humble and desires to please God, having proper motives to glorify God and for the good of your spouse, good listening skills, a willingness to die to self, 
And after that, we must work hard to make sure that our speech is holy, clear, purposeful, and timely. Okay? Holy, clear, purposeful, and timely. Does anybody have a handout from last week with them? Okay. And then one of the other things we talked about was the six prerequisites for good communication was you must have a desire to please the Lord. You must be humble. You must be aware that you are accountable to the Lord for everything that you communicate. You must know how to listen. You must believe that communication involves more than just your words. So your body language matters. And you must be willing to put forth the effort necessary. Okay? So that takes us to some principles for how to handle marital conflict. Okay? I want to read this quote from you from Alexander Strouch. It says, The moment Adam sinned, peace and unity of paradise was lost. Adam blamed Eve. Eve blamed the serpent. And everybody was blaming everybody else for their own sinful actions. And this fall initiated the war of the sexes. Disunity, rather than unity, came to characterize our relationships with each other. And life in this world became a battlefield. Unquote. Right? So again, if you think that it's possible to be in a marriage and not have conflict, you're in Disneyland. Okay? It's not happening. It is absolutely, I need to just like put this whole thing to bed and like beat this horse to death. You are going to disagree. You are going to have conflict. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of how. How you're going to do it, okay? So conflict is a direct consequence of the fall. And as stated earlier, much of the conflict comes from poor communication. Nevertheless, even after we learn to communicate in a godly fashion, this conflict is going to happen. So the question is, is how do we handle marital conflict in a godly fashion? That's the question, right? That's the question. How do we handle marital conflict in a godly fashion? First, you have to have the right attitude about marital conflict, okay? You have to have the right attitude about marriage in general and con marital conflict in particular. So marriage reflects the relationship between Christ and his bride, the church, and all we do in marriage should have the aim of glorifying God and the way we disagree should glorify God as well, okay? You can disagree, there's a way that two people can disagree that honors the Lord, okay? We have to stop thinking, you have to stop thinking that disagreement is automatically sin. That's not true. How, you, how the conflict goes is what can be sinful, but just disagreement in and of itself is not necessarily, not necessarily sin. You have to jettison that idea out of your mind. I don't even know where y'all got that from. Okay? So, if we don't have this viewpoint, all you're going to be after is behavior modification. Okay? You're just going to want to get rid of the conflict because it don't make you feel good. Right? 
which is self-serving and self-centered. You should want to rid your relationships of ungodly conflict. That is true, but the motive for doing so should always be the glory of God. Okay? So if you desire to end conflict in your marriage simply because you don't like it, you will not have the fortitude necessary to deal with long-term besetting sins that your spouse will have. Okay? So, for those of you that are not aware, I'm not being facetious when I say this, but you're married to a sinner. Okay? You're married to a sinner. If you're not married and you plan to get married, you're going to marry a sinner. Right? And some of those sins are going to be with you the entire course of your marriage until, until Christ calls them home. Okay? You're going to, your spouse is going to have some besetting sin that they're going to struggle with the entire course of your marriage. Right? Who, who's been in here? To, you've been married the longest in here, right? No, you. Are you married to a sinner? Yes. See? Are you married to a sinner? Yes. See, there you go. You're going to marry a sinner. They're gonna, you're going to have things you're going to struggle with with them your entire course of your, your marriage, right? And if your only goal for getting rid of conflict is so that you feel better about it and it's not for the sanctification of your spouse and for the glory of God, you are not going to have what it takes to deal with the person that you marry. You're not going to have what it takes. You're not going to have the mental fortitude, the spiritual strength, you're not going to have any what is actually necessary to deal with ongoing besetting sin for decades. You're not going to, you don't have it in you. So when we're dealing with conflict and sin in our marriages, many people recoil at this idea, right, and conclude that the only solution is deconstruction. So some people are like, I'm never getting married. If I got, if this is what you, if, if you, if I got to deal with somebody who's going to always be a sinner, I'm just not getting married ever. I don't want to deal with that. Okay? Or what some people do is they just, when they, they get married, they don't know this, and they figure it out, and then they get divorced. Okay? So for some, like I say, it's divorce, they just end the marriage altogether. And for others, it's completely redefining marriage, redefining marriage and the purpose of marriage. <clears throat> the problem with this kind of deconstruction and thinking is that it's just, it's not deep enough. You didn't go far enough, okay? It's not radical enough. And it's not getting to the root of the problem. Because if you divorce this guy or this woman and go be with another one, guess what you're going to still marry? You're going to marry another sinner, <laughs> right? Yes. I'm not sure I follow your question. Sure. So, okay. So, if I understand you correctly. Yes, you're going to always be dealing with sin in the person. You're going to be finding out as the years go along, you're going to see different kind of sin and new sin or sin that you didn't know was there at the beginning. Yes, that's going to happen. 
the point that I'm trying to make is, is that if your only goal is to get rid of conflict because of how you feel about it versus my goal is to see this person grow in sanctification, my goal is to see our marriage honor God, if that, the second one is your goal, you, can, you have the strength and the fortitude necessary to deal with that sin. Yes. Yes. Yeah, we talked about that a couple weeks ago. So that you're supposed to, we always, because we're reformed, we always talk about the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign, God is sovereign, God is sovereign, until you get to dealing with your spouse's sin. And then... So if God is sovereign, then the person that he sovereignly matched you up with, those, that, those particular sins that's in that person, God is using that to sanctify you. He sovereignly put that together. You had your hand up, brother? That's right. Because just knowing is not proof of sin. That's right. You can know how will works. <clears throat> that doesn't mean you actually have the experience of sin. That's right. There is a sense in which knowing is the first battle, but the real proving ground is how do you handle your sin and your relationship that is difficult in your singleness because that would be proof or showing that you're ready for marriage. Not let's get married. I know what it's about. I'm sure it's going to be so one of the things we talked about, I think it was probably four weeks ago, we talked about um, what to look for, what to look for in a spouse. If you are a man, you should be looking for these things. If you're a woman, you should be looking for these things. So one of the things we talked about is how, to, how, do, um, how does this potential mate, this potential spouse, treat his parents or his or her parents, respond to his or her parents? How do they spend their free time? How does a single man, how does he, um, with all of this free time that he has, how does he serve the body? Because if he's a single man and he doesn't serve the body with his free time, how can you reasonably be expecting him to serve a family? You, you play like you practice, Right? If you're, if you're looking at a woman who is a potential spouse and in that moment she is sitting under the authority of her father and she does not submit to him, you got big boulder rocks in your head if you think she's going to submit to you, right? So to, to Wally's point about this proving ground, you just got to go in with your eyes open and paying attention. How is this person responding in the moment where they are right now and believe what they do. That makes sense to you? One of the things my grandmother used to always say is when somebody tell you something, believe them, right? Just believe them. 
So if this, if this man or this woman is unsubmissive, that you just don't learn how to be submissive because somebody put a ring on your finger and said, I do. If a man is lazy and don't take care of his responsibilities outside of his marriage, what makes you think that a wedding ring is going to teach, he's just going to, like, it's like magic. A wedding ring isn't magic. It's not going to make you into a different person. It's just going to expose the sin that, you already, that you've been adept at hiding because you live by yourself. You understand? We said, this, we said this a couple weeks ago. The longer you stay married to somebody, the more things about them that you start to learn that you may not like. Okay? Hold on, hold that question. Hold that question. Okay? I got to keep moving. Um, just ask it at the end, okay? Okay. I'm sorry. Okay, just, just hold on to that. All right, so listen. We must remember that Christian marriages, we are dealing with people who are redeemed but not yet glorified, okay? They're, we're saved but not yet perfected, okay? So it should go without saying that the proper to attitude that we have to have in order to deal with conflict is love. We shouldn't have to say that. We shouldn't have to talk about this. It should seem apparent, but it's just a matter of fact. It's love, okay? If we don't truly love the Lord and we don't truly love our spouses, we will not have the courage, we will not have the patience, we will not have the fortitude needed to work to handle conflict in a godly manner, okay? So you must love before you seek to handle conflict well, because love covers a multitude of sin, right? And then next, we must have the same attitude that Christ had. So Philippians 2, 5 through 8 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Jesus Christ is the supreme example of humility and self-sacrifice. And this was on full display in his, carnation, in, his, in his incarnation and crucifixion. So it is impossible, it is absolutely impossible to deal with marital conflict if as a spouse you only out for yourself. If you only out for yourself, and you only ever want to be right, and you only ever want to get your way, if that's how you think, it's going to be a lifetime, a life of marriage full of conflict, okay? If you don't have the attitude that Christ has, humility and self-sacrifice, get ready for a lifetime of conflict, okay? If every person is promoting their own cause, and each person is seeking their own advantage, and you're not having this same mind in you that Christ had, it's just going to be conflict all the time. It's no way to avoid it. Okay? I need you to consider this for a minute. Our Savior left the glories of heaven. Okay? He left the glories of heaven. He came to earth to die a criminal's death for sinners. He did not do that for himself. He did that for us. Right? He didn't, like, 
absolutely want to grasp on to his rights as God. He wasn't self-absorbed and egocentric, but he gave himself, he waived his rights and his privileges for the sake and the benefits of those, for his people. That's the mindset that we got to have before we even get into any kind of conflict, okay? And until we truly grasp the extent of this statement, he emptied himself. We'll never have the proper motivation to resolve conflict. Now, when that, when that pastor says emptying himself, it don't mean that he, like, stopped being God, okay? What he did was all of the privileges and all of the glories and all of the rights that he had as being the God, the king of kings, he set those things aside so that you and I can obtain salvation by his death, okay? He didn't fight for his rights, you know? Those weren't the things that were most important to him. What was most important to him was the salvation of his bride. So conflict resolution demands humility. The humility of Christ and his example should be the example that we should be following. Amen? Okay, so in order for us to have this kind of humility, we have to keep the cross before us every day. We need to be preaching the gospel to ourselves every day. We need to be hearing the gospel every single day. So there is no room at all for sinful, self-centered pride and self-ambition in the shadow of the cross. The gospel reminds us of everything that we earned for ourselves. The gospel reminds us of everything we truly deserve, which is hell and condemnation. And it reminds us of the undeserved grace that Jesus Christ secured for us. Okay? It reminds us that our Savior, he gave up everything. He gave up everything so that we could gain salvation. And that we should have that same attitude. That's the same attitude that we should have when we're dealing with conflict with our spouse. And the gospel shows us that love is being more concerned for other people than holding on to whatever rights that we think that we have. Okay? This is the attitude. This mind that Christ possessed is absolutely essential and critical to resolving godly conflict in marriages. You had your hand up. Yeah, you went like this. Oh, I'm sorry. I just, I'm sorry, I saw your hand go up. All right. So, this is the attitude that you have to have in order to resolve godly conflict. And without it, it's hopeless. You'll never be able to resolve any conflict because you're going to always be out for yourself and what you want and get in your way. Next, godly conflicts mean godly, I'm sorry, handling godly conflict means we must control criticism. We must control the criticism we give. If we desire to handle conflict in a godly manner, we must communicate in a godly way, in a Christ-like fashion. We must love our spouses. We must be humble, which means we must control sinful criticism and ungodly judgment. So I just want to say this. Not all, not all criticism and not all judgment is necessarily wrong and sinful. Okay? There are times when rebuke and criticism are necessary and right, 
And as a matter of fact, there are times when being silent is wrong. Okay? So I'm not saying, making a blanket statement that all judgment is sinful. That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is, is that slanderous criticism, hypocritical judgment, and self-centered complaining are extremely, extremely divisive. And they cause greater conflict. Listen to James 4, 11 through 12. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks evil, the one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So James forbids any kind of slanderous or degrading talk, false criticism, defamation of character, and putting people down or false accusations. So when you're having a conflict with somebody, you should be attacking the problem, not the person. Don't impugn motives. Okay, whatever the problem is, deal with the problem. Don't ever say something like this. Well, the only reason why you got a problem with this is because you hate your mother. Or you, the only reason why you got a problem with this is because you are blah, blah, blah. Like, that's not how you deal with conflict. The way you deal with conflict is you deal with the problem. Okay? You deal with whatever the problem is is in front of you. We're supposed to outdo one another in showing each other honor. You should assume, go into every conflict assuming the best of the person that you disagreeing with. Assuming, assume that their motives are pure until they show you otherwise. Amen? Okay. So some spouses have a habit or a I should say, a natural reflex to criticize and make accusations. There's just some spouses that are like that. Your first reflex is to start criticizing and being critical and being judgmental. Listen, and, and to make accusations. And some people do it so much that they think it's normal behavior, but that's not true. That's not the way Christians are supposed to conflict or have. That's not the, an example of godly conflict. See, so we have an accuser, Satan. He's our mortal enemy. And the Bible says that he is the relentless uh, accuser of God's people. Revelation 12.10 said he accuses us day and night. That's what the Bible says. That's what, that is the M.O. of Satan. If, you, if your first reflex is to just immediately start accusing and immediately being critical, you are acting less like the God you claim to love and more like Satan. Okay? That should not, your first reflex should not be criticism and accusation. Okay? Constantly criticizing and accusing is more in line with the say, with the way that, that Satan does things than the way the Lord does. Our God is gracious. Our God is good. He's long-suffering and forbearing. He's been that way with you and I, and all, he, all he's asking you to do is just do for your spouse what he's done for you, okay? He's not asking you to do nothing he hasn't done already, okay? So in order to navigate conflict in a godly manner, our criticism and judgment can't be like the Pharisees, right? The Pharisees were the ultimate critics and fault finders. Their judgments were quick, harsh, negative, and unmerciful. They were experts at criticizing others for minor infractions while violating the weightier matters of the law. 
okay? So if you having a conflict with your spouse and they don't use the precise wording, right? And then you immediately attack and you're being ungracious. So here's what you got here. You got somebody who's not communicating well, but you're being ungracious. And I keep saying, two people can be wrong at the same time, okay? So minor infractions. So if, if hypothetically, you get in a conflict with your spouse and you say, and your spouse says, you always fill in the blank. Now, does that mean 100% of the time? No. Maybe. Do you do it 100% of the time? Okay. But, I mean, if you do it a majority of the time, don't get bent out of shape about the word always. Is there some truthfulness to what this person is saying? Okay. And then teach them how to find a better word later. Okay. So Jesus forbids condemning condemning and judging others for their own sin while failing to see our own. So a self-awareness, self-awareness of our own sins, our own flaws, and our own shortcomings helps to tremendously tamp down conflict. Okay? If you, if you are aware, self-aware of your own sin, understand, like, I'm a sinner saved by grace, if it were not for the grace of God, who knows where I would be? You're going to respond to the sin and the failures and the shortcomings of your spouse in a very different way. Okay? You're going to respond in a very different way. Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's right. That's good advice. So what she said was, you should reflect on the changes that your spouse have made has made over the course of time. So sanctification is going to happen over the course of time, and you should be reflecting on those things. So thank you, Ms. Sheila, for that. Listen. So we have to be able to know. So theoretically, we all believe we're sinners, right? We all say, oh, yeah, I'm a sinner. Nobody's perfect, okay? So if that's true, how do you respond when somebody actually articulates your sin to you? Right? That makes sense to you? So if you say, I know I'm a sinner, and then your spouse says, I'm so glad you said that. Here are your sins. Right? Don't do it that way. Don't do it that way. Right? Can you articulate your own sins? Not this nebulous idea that I'm just a sinner. Do you know the sins that your spouse is actually dealing with? Can you articulate them? If you're not married, right, and you're going to get married, can you communicate to your potential spouse, hey, these are the areas in my life that I struggle in these are some things that may be a besetting sin. Here's what they are. Can you say that? Can you articulate what those are? 
Because if you can't, then you may just be a sinner theoretically and not actually. That makes sense to you? So if you can't, if, you're, if you don't think you're a sinner actually, this is going to cause a whole lot of conflict in your marriage. Because when you get confronted with this actual sin, you're not, gonna, you're not listening. That makes sense? Yes. Right. That's right. So, okay, so I'm assuming two things. One, you're a Christian, right? And if you are, you should be in a church, a local church, not internet church, a real church with real human beings, okay? We live in crazy town, so you got to say that stuff now, okay? You should be actually covenanted with a body of believers with people around you who have the latitude and the liberty to point your sin out to you. Because you could be in a church, I've been to this church before, where you're there, you congregate together every Sunday, but you, you critiquing me on my sin is off limits. Okay? So are you actually a part of a body? I'm assuming you're a part of a body that you're actually in fellowship with, in membership with, and that these people actually have the liberty and the latitude to say, hey, Lucretia, you made a profession of faith, and I noticed that you were. That's unbiblical. Let me talk to you. Okay? So if you're in a decent church, if you're in a good, decent church, Matthew 18, the first stage of Matthew 18 is happening a lot. You just don't see it. That makes sense to you? Okay? Because it's supposed to be in private. So if Pastor Rolo sees somebody sinning, what is he supposed to do? He's supposed to take them in private, and, and if they stop and they repent, nobody else should know about it. Right? I got I to gotta move on. Listen. Don't judge others. Another thing that tamps down conflict is don't judge others over disputable matters. Okay? Listen to the word of God. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and to not please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproach, who you, I'm sorry, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Okay? And that's Romans 15, 1 through 4. Okay, so even though the Apostle Paul theologically would have agreed with the stronger Christians about the issues here, the theological issues of eating clean food versus unclean food, he would have totally opposed their loveless behavior and contempt and attitude for the people that disagreed with them. So unless we're talking about fundamental, fundamental essential doctrines of the faith or biblically defined moral failures and sin, 
your aim in a conflict should not be just to win and be right. Okay? If we're talking about something, you need to distinguish between are we in conflict over sin or are we in conflict over preferences and opinions? If it's, if it's a preference or opinion, listen to me, family, it's okay to lose. It, guess what you win when you get your preferences all the time? Nothing. Okay? You get nothing. Okay? So sometimes you'll live. It'll be, it'll be okay if you don't always get your way. You'll be fine. You, you're not going to die. Okay? And then this is the last point and I'm done. One of the most important things that will help us with marital conflict is this. Confession of sin. It's confession of sin. Hear the word of the Lord. I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So it's important for us to get our head around this idea. Listen, because guilty people who are not liberated by the gospel are easily manipulated, easily threatened, and they lash out in self-defense. So listen, in the day is coming when your spouse is not going to fight fair. There is, you're married to a sinner. The day is coming, they're not going to fight fair. They're going to potentially throw your sin in your face, and when you're forgiven, you won't respond ungodly. So when you throw your sin at me, guess what, dog? I'm free. Throw it up all you want. I'm free. There is no condemnation in Christ, no more. So you can act like a sinner if you want, but I'm not dishonoring my God right now. Okay? And you're only ever going to be able to do that when you're consistently confessing your own sin, laying your heart bare before the Lord, and running to Christ's forgiveness and believing that wholeheartedly. And so the day when your, when your spouse fights unfairly, you can say, I'm going to forgive you for that. Amen? Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you, Lord. We thank you, God, that um, because of Christ, we don't have to respond sinfully, that we are justified and we are free, God, because of the perfect sacrifice of your son. Lord, we thank you. Lord, help us to live in light of these truths. It's in the holy name of Christ we pray. Amen.